It's uh, good to be back in the pulpit. I haven't preached for the last five weeks, and I think that's, well, certainly the most longest period of time out of the pulpit in my 33 years of ministry, and it's been, uh, it's been good for me, and also I'm really I'm very thankful to Pastor Owen for his faithful uh, teaching from the scriptures as he led us through the first section of the prophecy of Habakkuk. And so we're going to continue this morning by turning to Habakkuk chapter 2. Habakkuk chapter 2, and our focus this morning is on verses 6 through 17. Habakkuk 2, verses 6 through 17, please give the Word of God your full attention. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise? And those awake who will make you tremble. Then you will be spoil for them. Because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth. To cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house. By cutting off many peoples, you have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done in Lebanon, the violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. We live in a time where everybody seems to be talking about justice. Justice, social justice, racial justice, gender justice. But no one in all of those public discourses, no one seems to be terribly concerned about how we decide what is just and what is unjust. Religious views have been excluded from the public discourse, so we can't appeal to those worldviews. And it seems that most modern worldviews are largely driven by what we would call materialistic evolutionary theory. And in that worldview, there is no overall narrative to history. There is no purpose to the events going on around the world. There's no purpose to life. The driving motivation 
whether people admit it or not, in that worldview is survival of the fittest and might makes right. I came across an article in the Babylon Bee. If you're not familiar with the Babylon Bee, it's a Christian parody satire site, kind of like The Onion. And in the Babylon Bee this past week, one of the headlines said, Atheists launched No Lives Matter movement. The article went on to talk about the mission statement as defining the group as people motivated by the belief that all human lives are equally meaningless. Just points out the fact that everybody has to answer the question. A couple of basic questions. What is the basis of your view of justice? How do you decide what is just and what is unjust? Is there an objective standard or do we all figure it out based on our feelings and experiences? For example, racial injustice has been the big topic for months now. On what basis do we decide that it is wrong for one race to treat another race as inferior or less than human? There seems to be general agreement on that, but on what basis? Evolutionary theory? I don't think so. Or another issue, the sanctity of human life, the protection of unborn children. On what basis do we decide whether it's just or unjust for the life of that unborn child to be taken? These are important questions. And when it comes to spiritual matters, it's even more important because according to God's word, you can't understand grace and the basis for grace from God unless you first understand justice and its basis in the very character and law of God. In this prophecy, the entire book of Habakkuk, the prophet is wrestling with his worldview. He has a biblical worldview. He believes in a God who is creator and provider and judge. But it doesn't fit with his experience. And so in chapter 1, he looks around at the culture, the context in which he was living in the nation of Judah, and he sees unchecked lawlessness, and he sees the wicked prospering. And he asks the legitimate question in chapter 1, why would a holy God who sees and knows all things, why would he allow this to go on? Well, then we get God's response, which is shocking to Habakkuk. God says, I am going to do something about it, and I'm going to do something about it soon. I'm going to bring along those bad Babylonians, the Chaldeans, they, it is the name that's given to them in Habakkuk. It's the name for the ba ba Babylonians. I'm going to bring the big bad Babylonians into the picture and they are going to punish Israel. They're going to punish God's people. They're going to devastate the nation of Judah. And then we saw Habakkuk's response. Wait, God, surely not. Surely this can't be true. The Babylonians, who at that point were just a rising kingdom in the, in the civilized world, the Babylonians are far more evil than the people of Judah. This is not what I had in mind. How could you as a holy God send a more evil people to punish the sins of your people? 
Well, this is a teaching moment for Habakkuk. He needs his worldview to be corrected. He needs his worldview to take into account the big picture, the long-term view. And so God begins to correct his perception as we move into chapter 2. And we saw in verse 4 of chapter 2 that God makes a distinction between the peoples of the earth, not based on race, not based on gender, but based on faith. In chapter 4, he says, Behold his soul, speaking of, as we're going to see in a moment, the king of Babylon, the Babylonians, those who reject the law of God, who reject God himself. Behold his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. As God looks at the world, he sees two kinds of people, those who live by pride and those who live by faith. There's only two kinds of people. Then as we move out this morning into verses 6 through 20, what we have there is God beginning to spell out what is going to happen to the Babylonian Empire. The Babylonian Empire is going to become huge. It's going to become powerful. It's going to dominate the known world. And God is going to use that empire to, like a rod to discipline his people But Habakkuk, as he seeks to understand this, how could God work in this way? God says to him, you need to look at the big picture. You need to look at the end. There is a narrative to history, and you need to keep your eyes focused on the end of that story. There are five woes in this passage. That's how the passage is organized. There are five woes. This week, we're going to look at the first four, and then next week, we'll look at the fifth woe. A woe is a lament. A woe is a, an expression of grief. And in this, we are going to see the destiny of the great empire of Babylon. And one thing to remember as we look at the end, as God predicts what's going to happen to the empire of Babylon, understand that from this point on in Scripture, the kingdom of Babylon becomes a symbol or a representative of all the kingdoms of this earth that refuse to bow a knee to the lordship of the one true God. We're going to see a great reversal coming. Never lose sight of the fact that a great reversal is coming. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. Look at verse 6. <coughs> This is the introduction to this passage. And it says, Shall not all these take up their taunt against him? Now, who is the him that this is referring to? Who is the him that is being taunted and mocked? Well, in context, it's either referring to the individual who is the king of Babylon or him in the sense of Babylon as a personified nation probably thinking of the king as he represents this great worldly empire, the king of Babylon, who would have been probably Nebuchadnezzar who was coming to power during the lifetime of Habakkuk. In verse 5, what you have there in verse 5, if you move back a second to the last verse from last week's passage, is a description of every evil tyrant in history. He's driven by arrogance, driven by a greed for power and wealth. And then there's this ominous description 
where it says, who is never at rest, like death, he has never enough. You see, that's, if, you, if that's the hunger that drives you, is the hunger for power and the hunger for wealth, the stark truth is, is that you're never going to be satisfied. You're never going to have enough. And that describes every worldly tyrant that this, that this planet has ever known. Never has enough. Like death, he has and never has enough. There's a legend, and it probably isn't based in history, but the legend rings true, that Alexander the Great, who was one of the greatest world conquerors, as a matter of fact, conquered really most, uh, all of the civilized world as he knew it in his day for ancient Greece. But there's a legend that says that Alexander the Great, when he had conquered the last kingdom, wept and could not be consoled. And when they asked him why he was weeping, he said, it's because there are no more kingdoms to conquer. That is the true heart of a tyrant. Well, in going back to verse 6, if, if the him is the king of Babylon or Bam, Babylon in general, then who are all these that are taunting him and mocking him? Well, as we will see as we work through these verses, it's all of the conquered nations, all of the victims who had been plundered and ransacked and oppressed by the Babylonians. And so what we have from verse 6 to verse 20 is this dirge, this funeral song that is sung in a mocking tone by the victims of the Babylonian Empire. And like I said, it's, it's structured by five woes. We're going to look at the first four. The first woe Basically, to summarize what the first woe says is that for the prideful, all debts will be repaid. Look at verse 6. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own and loads himself with pledges. Like every world empire that history has ever known, Babylon became wealthy and powerful by military conquest, by plundering by oppressing the people that the kingdom conquered. And once Babylon became rich and powerful, Babylon in its pride would see itself and the king of Babylon would see himself as basically the creditor to all the nations that depend upon Babylon, that are under Babylon's iron boot. They would see themselves as the creditor and that all these nations are debtors to them. But what God is saying to the prophet Habakkuk here is there is going to come a day soon when those debtors are going to rise up. And in God, what he's saying is that in God's eyes, it's the nation of Babylon that is the debtor. The nation of Babylon is the one who owes to God what it has unjustly taken from all the people that it has subjugated, all the people that it has oppressed. Every piece of land, every piece of property, every cachet of gold or silver, everything of worth that has been taken unjustly, that is a debt towards God, and all debts will be repaid. That's the message of the first woe. Look at verses 7 and 8. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them because you have plundered many nations all the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you. But then I want you to notice in verse 8, 
Because I think in, in our historical context, this is important to point out. That in verse 8, it says that Babylon will not only have to pay for all of its wickedness and oppression of human beings, but also for their violence to the earth. It's interesting it mentions this also in verse 17. The same thing is repeated in verse 17. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. In verse 17, it actually mentions Lebanon in, in particular. That Babylon, when it devastates Israel, is going to exploit the beautiful forest of Lebanon. Lebanon in Israel was known as a great forest of beautiful cypress trees or cedar trees. And it mentions in verse 17 that the animals and trees of this great forest are going to be devastated and Babylon will be called to account for what they did to God's earth. I get really frustrated by modern environmentalism because I love God's creation. Matter of fact, I love God's creation more than most people that I know. I love God's creation because I believe that God has placed people made in his image here on the planet to care for and nurture and protect. Yes, use the resources of his creation for our good and for his glory, but to use it in a way that is humble and submissive to his will and for the good of the creation, like a garden, to treat it as a garden, to care for it for its good. And so when we exploit God's creation, when we abuse God's creation, when we use the resources without any concern for the planet or for future generations, yes, we are accountable to God. God created this planet. It belongs to him, and we are accountable to him. But the vast majority of the modern environmentalist movement don't recognize God as creator. They don't recognize God as being the one to whom we owe obedience and to whom we have to give an account for our offenses against his creation. And so I cannot support most of what is called the environmentalist movement these days because they have an, a social and political agenda that is contrary to God's word in many other ways in many other places. So what does that mean for us? It means the church needs to speak up more. The church needs to speak more loudly. The church needs to speak more clearly about God's creation, what he intends for it to be and how he intends for us to enjoy it and to use it for his glory. In the word of God, it says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Sometimes we think, well, that's an Old Testament teaching. It doesn't apply anymore. No, that's a basic concept of justice that undergirds God's law. Every debt will be repaid. Every sin must be paid for in full. God is not just going to wipe off debt because he's a nice God. It doesn't work that way. Every sin must be fully paid for. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Justice is based upon the character of God and as it is expressed in the law of God. And every infraction of the law of God must be punished. 
It's not just an Old Testament concept. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, the Apostle Paul says, do not, be see, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. The first woe. All debts will be fully repaid to our holy God and our judge. Second woe. Basically, Starting in verse 9, we see that the prideful, for the prideful, all security will be lost. For the prideful, all security will be lost. Look at verse 9. It's a picture there of how wealthy, powerful tyrants and oppressors have to live because of their unjust gain, because of their evil gain in the language of verse 9. Because they gained their wealth and power by evil means, by sinful means, by oppression, by exploitation, therefore they have to, in the words of verse 9, put their nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. Just like birds have to put their nest high in the tree to be safe from predators or high on a cliff to be safe from predators, for the same reason evil tyrants have to live in fortified palaces. King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon would live in a fortified palace surrounded by armed guards. Yes, he lived in luxury, but he also was imprisoned because he had many enemies that he gained through his sinful means of coming to power and wealth. And that is still the case today. I think about the evil tyrants today, the dictators, the mob bosses, the drug kingpins who live in palaces, yes, but they live with high-tech security and armed guards and they cannot go out lest their life be in danger. There is no security in rejecting your creator and your judge. In verse 10, God says, to the king of Babylon, you have devised shame for your house. You have forfeited your life. There is no security system. There's no army. There's no weapon that can shield you from God's judgment. It is coming, and you will have to stand before him and give an account. And like the rich man in Jesus' parable, who thought he could find his security in putting his bountiful crops into bigger barns, God says, you fool this day, this night, your soul is required of you. You have forfeited your life. All of your security is gone. And verse 11 says, For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. It's God's way of saying to Habakkuk, Habakkuk thinking of the palaces of King Nebuchadnezzar, if only these walls could talk. His palaces one day would testify against him. Yes, once he lived in power and wealth and comfort, but all that's been taken away and he has nothing to show for it. Reminds me, after the Iraq war, there were pictures of Saddam Hussein's palaces all shot up, bombed away, still remnants of the glory, the earthly glory of his sinful kingdom. But after the war was over, they were only testimonies to the decadence of his life and the evilness of his kingdom. 
We need to keep this big picture in view that all debts will be repaid and there is no security for those who live by faith in their pride and live for power and wealth. The third woe is found beginning in verse 12. And in that section, we see that for the prideful, all of their accomplishments will be nullified. Verse 12 says, Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. I challenge you to name one world empire that it wasn't at least largely built upon the shedding of the blood of the conquered for the sake of their power and their wealth and their glory. You can't do it. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Greece, Rome, the Ottoman Empire, Nazi Germany, the Soviet Union, even the best kingdoms that Earth's history has known like the kingdom of Great Britain or even the kingdom, if we can speak of it, of America is guilty of being built to one degree or another on the blood of men and upon sin. In our American history, we do have shameful chapters of how some of the Native Americans were treated. Or certainly, as we've focused on so much recently, the dark period of slavery in this country and racism that followed. Even the way that we treated countries under our power and influence in the Middle East. There are many sins that our kingdom, our empire, will be called account to account for, not the least of which the way we've treated our most vulnerable and our unborn children. All kingdoms built by violence and wickedness will come to nothing. All the great glories, all the great accomplishments, all the beautiful buildings, the palaces, the monuments to the great history. Everybody's so concerned about monuments these days. Understand that one day they're all going to be turned to dust and blow away. That's what God is saying to Habakkuk. Keep the big picture in mind. In verse 13, God says, Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? If you live by pride, if you reign by pride, if you oppress by pride, understand that all that you accomplish in this world is going to be for fire. It's going to be for nothing. The fire, of course, according to Scripture, always refers to God's judgment. And we think of what Peter prophesied in the third chapter of 2 Peter, where he says, by the same word, the word of God, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and all the works that are done on it will be exposed. God is saying to Habakkuk the same thing that God said to the Apostle John and to us in the book of Revelation. That yes, in the present, it's going to look like the wicked prosper, the wicked rule, and God's people suffer. And this is going to seem unjust. It's going to seem unfair. 
but understand that the successes and the prosperity of those who live for pride is going to be called to account and everything that they accomplish will ultimately mean nothing when judgment comes. We will not understand human history until Christ comes in judgment. But when he comes, and he is coming, we will glorify God for the way that God has worked out his plan to perfection. Verse 14 is one of the great gospel promises of the Old Testament. Looking forward to the first coming of Christ and ultimately to the second coming of Christ. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The Lord God is going to come in judgment and all evil empires, all unbelievers, all who live for their pride will be judged and brought to nothing. And in that place, God is going to renew this creation. He's going to wipe away every trace of sin, every trace of oppression, every trace of injustice. And he is going to establish a new heavens and a new earth. And Christ is going to reign. And we will be with him forever, those who live by faith and not by pride. But we still have one more woe to go. That is the fourth woe, which starts in verse 15. And in that section, God is saying to the prophet Habakkuk, for the prideful, all shame will be exposed. Verses 15 and 16 are kind of an uncomfortable couple of verses there. It's really a picture of sexual exploitation. It pictures the king of Babylon or the people of Babylon. It pictures them saying to those who are under their power, come on, let's get drunk. For the purpose, it says, of gazing at their nakedness. In other words, to take advantage of them. It's hard not to read that and think of some of the sexual predators that we read about in our national headlines so often. Hard not to think about somebody like Harry Weinstein that's exactly doing exactly the kind of thing that's being described here. Somebody who's in power and authority and influence over others, using that to bring them under addiction, so to speak, to get them drunk, to get them intoxicated, to take advantage of them. But I think there's a metaphor here too, because this is something that people in power do. When you're in power, there is such a great temptation to exploit the people under you by making them dependent upon you, by making them addicted to what you provide for your advantage. I remember years ago, I used to, it's gotten so much better recently, but it used to be like two or three times a week I would get something in the mail from a major bank trying to get me to sign up for a credit card. There was a lot of that kind of exploitation going on. And even when my kids started going to college, we'd get snowed under by advertisements, trying to get the kids, college kids, to get credit cards. Because the sooner you get them addicted to credit, the better for the companies and the banks. I think of our government. Pennsylvania State gets a big chunk of its, its revenue from gambling. 
They used lottery and other ways of promoting gambling to addict people so that they can get tax revenue. God is going to call these things to account. These are things that they're going to have to answer to God for. This is the kind of exploitation of the people under your power that God hates. And he's describing in this passage. But look in verse 17. God promises to the Babylonians that he's going to turn the tables. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you. You're going to get drunk, Babylon. You're going to get drunk, world kingdoms, on the cup in the Lord's right hand. And we know from the rest of Scripture that that cup is the cup of God's wrath. As Psalm 75, verses 78 describe it, it says, It is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs, every last drop. Every sinful thought, every sinful word, every sinful deed will be fully punished. You know, what's interesting is how this actually, in an almost literal way, this foreshadows how the kingdom of Babylon fell. We have the record of it in Daniel chapter 5. You probably know the story. King Belshazzar, who was a successor to Nebuchadnezzar, King Belshazzar was having a great drunken feast in his palace. And in the midst of that debacle, he calls upon his servants to go and get from storage the sacred cups, the holy cups that were used in the temple in Jerusalem and has them brought into this drunken feast so that he and his partiers can drink wine from them and get more drunk and sing songs, it says, to their false gods. And by that means, mock the one true God, Yahweh. In the midst of that, Suddenly, there appears a disembodied hand, the hand of God himself, and it writes a message on the wall that they don't understand. And so they ask to have the prophet Daniel brought in to interpret it. And Daniel gives them this message based on what was written on the wall. God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Your kingdom is being divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And that night, the Medes and the Persians came over the wall, probably while they were still partying, and they assassinated King Belshazzar, and the kingdom of the Babylonians was no more. What God is saying to Habakkuk in his confusion about the state of mankind, he's saying to us, don't take your eyes off the cup in the Lord's right hand. Revelation chapter 18, as I said, the rest of Scripture uses Babylon as an image of all world kingdoms that refuse to bow a knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Revelation chapter 18, here you have the fall of these world kingdoms at the second coming of Christ described in terms of Babylon's fall. 
It says, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped up high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup that she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning." For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. As the writer of Hebrews says, all no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. I understand this is a heavy and dark message, but I want to go back to my first point. You cannot understand grace and the basis for grace unless you understand justice and the basis for justice. And what God presents here to the prophet Habakkuk is the basis for justice and a hint, a promise of grace to come. We all deserve to drink from the cup of God's wrath to its very dregs every last drop for every sin that we've ever committed and thought were and indeed we all deserve it. That's justice. But grace is found in verse 14. That's based upon Habakkuk's gospel. Remember Habakkuk's gospel from chapter 2, verse 4. The righteous shall live by faith. Only two kinds of people, those who live by pride and those who live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. Faith in the one who came and drank the cup of God's wrath in our place. When Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane before he went to the cross, he said to his father, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He shrank from the idea of drinking the cup of God's wrath that all of our sins deserved. He never sinned in thought, word, and deed. Yet he took our sins upon himself and he drank the cup of God's wrath to the very last drop for every sin that we've ever committed. That's why before he went to the cross, he was able to sit down with his disciples and offer to them a different cup. Not the cup of wrath, but the cup of salvation. The cup of the new covenant. In his blood, he said, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. We drink from the cup of salvation, while those who live by pride and not by faith drink of the cup of God's wrath. This is the basis for justice, and this is the basis for grace. Justice is based upon God's character and his law, and we're all accountable to it. But grace is based upon Christ fulfilling the demands of God's justice, of drinking that cup of wrath in our place so that we might be forgiven and might be, receive the gift of his righteousness and be adopted into God's family and be a part of that beautiful kingdom that's described in verse 14. 
So we grieve over the injustices in our world while we wait in faith for God's justice to come. And lest you think that I'm saying that waiting for God's justice to come means that we sit and do nothing. It's the same as with our sanctification. We are saved by grace, but the promise is that we will one day be made perfect. All of our sin will be taken away and we will be made perfect in the sight of God. We know that's coming and we wait for that great day. But in the meantime, we work daily to live out that righteousness, to fight against sin, to fight against temptation, to live righteously. It's the same way with justice. Justice is coming. And we have a beautiful picture for it of it here. But until that day, we do what we can legally in our families, in our workplace, in our neighborhood, in our community, in our country, to try to bring the justice of the word of God to bear upon a sinful and rebellious generation. But don't ever forget the final view, the end of the story, the end of the narrative. And let me just read it for you again, verse 14, because this is what drives us, because this is going to come true one day. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Let's pray. Father God, we are so often in the same place that the prophet Habakkuk was in looking at the world around us and striving by faith to see what your hand is doing, but seeing nothing but an overwhelming display of injustice and sin and wickedness and mocking of your name and rejecting of your law. Lord, increase our faith. Help us to see more clearly that Christ is already on the throne, that his his victory over death and his establishment of his kingdom that came through the power of the Holy Spirit in the work of the early church, Lord, that that kingdom is still advancing, that those who are lost like we once were are coming to understand that the just shall live by faith, that we know you because of what Christ has done for us. Help us to be faithful to not only spread the message of the truth, but also the fruit that comes from believing that message. We pray in Christ's name, amen.